again, a very happy birthday to Jeanette Baird and to Greg Lack. And Helga. Who? Elva's birthday as well. Happy birthday. Look, you look great. 21 today for Elva. We are speaking and looking at a very serious chapter of the scripture today, one that when I was preparing, I have been under immense conviction and immense uh, weight of the gravity of this, of this chapter and of the words of taming the tongue. And as we start, I have felt that I should say, if I have been able to give you a word of encouragement and lift you up, I'm, I'm grateful. But if there is a word that I have said at some stage that has been hurtful and pulling you down, I want to say I'm sorry. We're going to look at a video. I remember growing up, my kid brother was a bit of a, a bit of a pyro. He used to like to set things on fire. We had all these army guys and all these little toys and uh, occasionally a stack of papers, but he would just light them on fire and you know, do crazy things like that. It always drove my parents crazy. Uh, I remember one time he was doing a sleepover in the neighbors and uh, they were staying in this little pop tent out in the backyard and uh, when they were supposed to be sleeping, he actually set the tent on fire when they were inside the tent and it was pretty crazy. And, you know, truthfully, he was lucky to get out with his life. Um, you know, but I guess that's kind of normal growing up. Kids will be kids, boys will be boys, boys are curious, they like to, you know, play around with things, they like to play with fire. Well, one time, uh, things got out of control a little bit. We were, we had this big old woods behind our house and all kinds of trees and big open grassy areas and it hadn't rained in a real long time and um, he thought it'd be kind of fun to go back there with his friends and maybe start a little fire, but you know, Boom, the whole thing lit up and the woods literally went up in flames and it was bad and a lot of trouble came his way after that one. There was this other kid, a girl actually, who uh, went to high school with. She, uh, she was kind of a loner and you know maybe people didn't like her so much and I remember people used to you know say kind of bad things about her and she would you know people would gossip about her and you know really would just kind of just ruin her and well, one Saturday afternoon, she had taken all that she could take, and um, she went into her parents' bathtub, and um, she slit her wrist, killed herself, and they found a note, and uh, the note simply said, Dad, I can't believe what they said. And that's basically all it said. The power of words, gossip, the ability for our tongue to destroy somebody else. So all of this makes me think about my own life and look a little closer at some of the things that I've said and the words I've spoken. I wonder how many times I've hurt people. I mean, how many times have I spread stories and rumors and how many times have I really burned people around me? And I wonder how many times I've sparked a flame or got a rumor going or I wonder how many times I fanned the flame of what somebody else started. I guess I just wonder what kind of path of destruction is going to be left behind me because of, because of my words, because of my careless words. 
I'm okay this time, Gail, we're okay. Here's a, fun, a few fun facts as we start our time together this morning. The average person, and I mean the average person, not the overly talkative person or the super shy person, the average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. That's a whole fifth. If all of our words were put into print, the result would be this. A single day's words would fill a 50-page book. In a year's lifetime, the average person's words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. That's in a year. And that's only average. Some of you are like, that can't be true. That, that can't be true. I've only written four books in the last 10 years, let alone 132 by 10, like 1,320 books. And others of you are like, oh, mate, I'd probably fill the state library. <laughs> the point of this statistic is that we are constantly talking. Our world and our lives are filled with talking. We talk to ourselves. We talk to others. Yes, and that includes texts and emails and tweets and all of that sort of stuff. We are a communicating creature created by God who communicates via words. And so we are constantly talking, constantly thinking, constantly sharing sharing what we think. Some of us are external processes, ones that blurted out. Some of us are internal processes where we hide in our cave and we do it all internally. But we all talk a lot. One-fifth of your life will be spent with your mouth open, and that's not counting when you're asleep and snoring. But one-fifth of your life will be with your mouth open talking. That's a lot of opportunities to speak words of life and encouragement. But it's also lots of opportunity to speak words of death and discouragement. Words of cursing or words of blessing. The word of God and God's invitation into life as he designed it would be is to have some things... It, it, it would have some things to say about how we use the fifth of our life. It shouldn't be surprising that God has an idea, a design for how we use our words. We know in this book of James that he already alluded to this in, uh, in chapter 1 when he said, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, but slow to speak. Words are powerful, aren't they? They bring life, they bless, or they can bring death, or they can bring curse. James is saying, hey, we can tame a snake or a dolphin in verse 7, as you heard the scripture being written, uh, read, sorry, but we can't watch our mouths. We can tame lots of things in creation, but we can't tame our own mouths. We can tame any sort of bird or reptile, uh, creature on earth, but we can't get our tongue to obey us. Words are powerful. With them we bless others. We bless God. 
We build them up and with them we pull people down and we pull God down and we pull ourselves down. Throughout the Bible, this is actually a very common conversation. For we read in Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. I don't know if you saw, but recently it was a high profile, the young girl who um, took her own life in the Northern Territory. And she took her own life because of cyberbullying, because of the words that were constantly spoken into her life. A terribly tragic thing, but not an isolated case. I've conducted many funerals in my life and and, um, quite a number of those are suicides and many of those are because of broken relationships and often because of the words said as a result of the broken relationships. And I remember the youngest uh, suicide that I conducted was a young Indigenous girl and she's only 14 and it was all about that sort of stuff. Right now there are teenagers and university students, there are military veterans, there are young adults and older adults who have ended their lives not because of deep depression, although that comes as a result, but directly, because, or not because of necessarily chemical imbalance, uh, but directly because of the incessant, constant, non-stop belittling, mocking and tearing down of other people either in a group or uh, personally one-to-one or through social media, and it led them to take their own lives. Words have the power of life and death. They do. The Proverbs would also argue, not only do they have the power of life and death, but they also have the power to wound or to heal. For it says in Proverbs 12, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Words can wound. And if we're honest, almost all of us could probably think back and remember when someone said something to us or we said something to them that cut so deep that it affected us or it probably affected them later. None of us are out of the woods here. None of us are in the guiltless pile. I remember as a five-year-old and I've shared this story before not a five-year-old a ten-year-old in year 10 and and when the teacher responded to my bad maths uh, solution that I was hopeless and that I was no good and that I'd never be as good as my cousin who was in the same class and who's now a civil engineer and he's really good at maths and I'm better at English uh, it was from that that the words of that teacher struck deep in my heart in my spirit And as a result, I have had the programming all of my life that I'll never be good enough for anybody else. There are those 10-year-old boy words that keep emerging in my life that keep saying, see, you're not good enough and you'll never be good enough. Now, I understand what they are now and I manage them a lot better than I used to. But they're some of those words that happen in our lives and there are people sitting in this room who can identify with that. It might have been from a mother or a father. It might have been from a brother or a sister, a teacher or a friend. It's those words that program how we think. When I burnt out from the pastoral position I was back in the 90s, 
the verbal abuse that came to Barbara and I as a result keeps coming back to me sometimes as a pastor now because of the way that it cuts deep into our heart. That doesn't mean that I haven't forgiven. It just means that those things are driven deep into our heart. Words are powerful, aren't they? They wound us in ways we really aren't even aware of. Most of the ways that we lash out and act have to do with some sort of wound that has probably come via words. They can wound or they can heal. They can do either. If you tear down everything and don't build something in its place, you'll end up homeless. Be careful. Be careful what you listen to in the words that are being said to you. Be careful of the words that you say to yourself because sometimes because of that pain and that damage, we can be caused to pull down and pull down and pull down even those around us and even in the house that we live in terms of our life. Be careful because it could make you end up homeless if you're not rebuilding. Be careful of what you say to others. James gives three illustrations. All point to the same thing, but they are three different illustrations. If we look in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. I remember too, I've ridden a lot of horses in my life as well, and I remember when I was working on a cattle property at it, uh, near Condamine at Miles, and we would muster the cattle and I had a horse that was, had an awesome mouth. And if you understand horses and ones that have got a sensitive mouth with the bit in it, you can do just about anything with that horse. It might be 17 hands high, which is pretty high at the shoulder. And it almost takes your stepladder to get up on the thing. And you, I had one horse there and we would muster the cattle and one beast would, would take off from the mob. Cattle do that or it might have been a young one or a steer or something, all I'd had to do with my rein was flick it and the horse would be off after it because it had a beautiful mouth, sensitive. And that little bit, that little bit of metal in its mouth helped me <laughs> to control that hundreds of kilo animal. And yet there was a friend of mine years later who got a horse given to him and he said, oh, I'm not a horse rider, can you come and give it a go? So I went and gave it a go. It turned out that the horse was an ex-barrel racer. And barrel racing horses go like this because they're racing in and out of the barrels. And I wasn't aware of um, what it was going to be like. So I had a little bit of a trot and I got up to a bit of a canter and was doing really well. So I slammed it to get it into a bit of a gallop and suddenly it was going really well, really well. Then it went left. And I kept going straight. I got up on the blinking three thing three times and came off three times and ended up with concussion for about a week. But uh, <laughs> horses can be responsive or non-responsive because of their mouth, but it's that bit that controls them. The second illustration in James is the same. Look at the ships also. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. I don't know if you've been on many ships. Uh, 
you think that I'm, things that I've been able to do in my life. I was a customs officer on the seaport before Bible college and I used to search ships. And sometimes he'd be right down deep into the bowel of the ship, even right down near the keel, and it might be a 30,000-ton ship. And you go into the holes or into the, uh, the storage areas and you look up and it's just absolutely amazing. And there was one ship, I went into the engine room and the pist- one piston of the, of the engine, I could stand inside the piston of the engine uh, and it was bigger than me. And you look at the size of these ships, they're amazing and yet you look at the comparative size of their rudder and they're only small. You look at our lives and the comparative size of our little muscle in our mouth and you think, man, that thing steers us from here to there, doesn't it? Both examples illustrate the power of speech. If it's controlled well, it's effective and wonderful. But if it's controlled poorly, the disaster can be enormous. Then there's this third illustration and that's of a fire. How great a a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, it can be one of a match. And of great thousands of hectares can burn down. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For everything, that's pretty powerful, that's pretty wild. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. If you pay attention in history and uh, the movements within history, the highest heights and the lowest lows, the most depraved moments, all of them are marked by one thing, rhetoric. If you look at the history of Adolf Hitler with Germany pre-World War II in the 1930s and then during World War II, he controlled the people by rhetoric. He was a master communicator. I watched a, a, a documentary on it yesterday and the evil and I could go into, uh, it wasn't political, it was all cultish stuff. But anyway, he was, you could, they had footage of the people listening to him and they were totally mesmerised and taken up with his speeches. He did it with rhetoric. There is no great movement in human history that did not have an amazing communicator somewhere in the midst of all of it. The one who set language, who with the rhetorical flair uh, incited fury or patriotic duty or zeal and love and hate all at the same time. See, one of the truths of human history is that words can lead us to some of the most deplorable, despicable and wicked things imaginable. Things we couldn't fathom doing. We're now able to do because words have defined reality for us. This was true of the Holocaust. And now as people try to dissuade others that the Holocaust never happened by their words. All the highs and lows of human history have had in there somewhere some brilliant rhetoric. 
And this is what makes Christianity something totally different in world history. Because the Apostle Paul, who wrote 75% of the New Testament, uh, is the greatest missionary we've had in the Christian faith. And he actually says, I'm not a good preacher. I didn't come with wise and persuasive words, but rather by demonstration of the power of God. So Christianity flourished not under rhetoric. Christianity flourished under power. The power of the Holy Spirit. Using the words of men and women. Using those words, but it was because of power. Christianity spread not because in the first century we had magnificent orators, but because the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work among those who were preaching what appeared to be a ridiculous thing, a silly message. And yet it was so infused with power that men and women were converted to Christ. Even on the day of Pentecost, they preached and 3,000 souls came to Christ. Not by the rhetoric, but by the power. See, Jesus called a bunch of unlearned guys. These guys, this motley bunch who turned the world upside down. Not because they were good, they might be good fishermen, but not good orators. Possibly some of them were good. Peter was good. Christianity, although it's had a history of great teachers and great communicators and and, uh, good preachers, its foundation was not one of rhetoric, but of power. So here's another point of James I just want to show. Not only are words powerful, but words reveal our maturity and our identity. See, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is self-discipline. Self-discipline with regard to one's speech is rare. For we read in chapter, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways in the CEV version it says we all make mistakes don't we and it's sometimes the wretched thing that you wish you didn't do all of the time we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says he's a perfect man hands up those who are perfect none oh half a hand Michael yeah right I'll talk to you later (laughs) Reach the gap. He's a perfect man, able also to bridle or tame his whole body, his whole life. That's what it means. Now, here's the unique mark about the sins that come from our mouths the words we use to cut, to tear down, to hurt, to purposely break, uh, those things. And here's an interesting thing to think about there's a whole set of sins that loses power as we grow older. If we were to look in the last book of Ecclesiastes, the book that uh, Al was reading today, and that was the last chapter, it talks about how things fail in our lives. Our desires, our bodies, our, uh, sometimes the sexual desires, all of those sorts of desires that are rampant through our lives as we grow older, they get worse. But as we grow older, sometimes our tongues get sharper and stronger. Sometimes out of our non-ability to change, our tongues get sharper and we can sometimes be a little bit more critical. Sometimes a little bit more negative. Oh, the wheel's not as good as when I was a child. 
those sorts of things, we can become more negative. But the Bible says if you live long enough, you'll be doing it. You'll be failing in your body, failing in lots of different ways, but your tongue will be just the same. Whether you're 90, 117 or 145, I don't know if anybody's 145 quite yet, but the Bible is clear. The desire eventually fails, except for the tongue. So there's a type of sin that begins to lose its power because of our fleshly abilities or non-abilities in a way that it's not true about the tongue. In fact, the, the tongue gets more aggressive. It does. I remember walking into a, a nursing home that I used to visit regularly as a funeral director. And, um, and there was an old Methodist minister whose mind had gone from him. Man, his tongue was wild. You could hear him from the outside of the front door. And some of the language, you make your hair curl. But it's the tongue that remains. I reckon for him it was probably that he'd heard all of these things all of his life and contained them within himself and his mind was no longer able to contain them and they just all rushed out. Pastors hear a lot of different language, I tell you. As you're physically unable to be angry, to intimidate, to force people with physical power or manipulate with physical presence, the tongue is always active. It's always there. Now, there's something I need to clarify. James is not saying that if you simply learn how to control your tongue, all other struggles will magically go away. But rather, the work of taming the tongue takes us right into the epicentre of all that is wrong with us, namely our hearts. This is the way that Jesus would say it in Luke. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So that one-fifth of our life spent talking, the words that come out of our mouths, where do they come from? Why are they so powerful? They're not powerful simply because they make vibration in the air, because our tongues are wagging. We interpret uh, the tongues wagging as we interpret uh, the words. They're powerful because it's our heart saying to another soul, this is what I think about you. This is what I think about this situation. Our words reveal what's really going on in our hearts. Now, think about how good of a gift this is from God. You don't have um, to wonder if you have an angry heart. You don't have to wonder if you have a jealous heart. You don't have to wonder uh, what's going on. Your words reveal it. If you're always snapping, you're always exploding, you have an angry heart. You don't have to go, I really don't have an angry heart, really. I, um, I just didn't get enough sleep last night. Or, or I was just stressed out. Don't justify it. All that led to anger, yes. And that exploded out of your mouth, which came out of your heart and landed on someone else. If we're honest, some of our lives are marked by the words that tear down, words that attack, words that hurt. In fact, we're just 
just so that we all feel a bit more comfortable, how many in this room at any time in your life, including when you were young, has purposely said something to hurt someone else? Ever. You're in good company. Here we all are. We've done it. We've wanted to crush them. We've wanted to get back at them. We wanted to wound them because they've wounded us. How about this? Sometimes some of us are so fear of men orientated that we go so far just to crush someone. So in, or we're, we're so fear oriented that we don't go that far to crush someone. So instead we just refuse to enter their celebration of their life, whatever they're excited about. Oh, did you see my new car? Yeah, but I like Subarus better. Yeah, nah, I'm a Ford man. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a whatever man. It's like, oh, no, I'm not entering into that with you. I'm going to try and make, take the joy from you. I'm just going to take it, that away from you. I'm going to wound you. But I'm too cowardly just to outright say, I don't like you. So I'm just going to be passive-aggressive and chisel away at you just by disagreement. Or how about this? Are you jealous? Look at me. Do you constantly have to give people your resume? Are you the one at the dinner table who can't wait for everybody else to to stop talking so that you can be the one-upman? So that you can say that you've done it and twice and better? Have you struck people like that? Yeah. Just always having that one up, always having to try to give the resume about why you're so great or why you're so amazing and why everybody should look up to you. Let, let me tell you what all of this reveals about our hearts. It talks about jealousy. See, what drives your heart is your identity. What drives your mouth is your heart. But what drives your heart is your identity. And here's where the gospel enters this space of our mouth and saves us. Let's have this honest conversation. My issue for the longest time was I'm not good enough. So I try to control stuff. I try to assert my position, especially when I feel threatened. Because I don't feel good enough. That's me. And I'm opening my heart to you because that illustrates to you that that's what happens. Sometimes when people say, I don't, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, they treat people really rudely so that other people reject them and then they can can, uh, reinforce to themselves, see, nobody loves me. We do these things subconsciously, we all do it. After I do it, then I fall into this pit of shame and guilt, which reinforces my thought that I'm not good enough. It's a never-ending vicious circle. It's crazy. And if you're in that circle and you can't get out, you need some help. I receive help with mine. I debrief it often so that I can let it be out in the open in, in the light rather than hiding it in the dark where it gets worse. Now, maybe yours isn't that. Maybe yours is jealousy. Maybe yours is bitterness. I don't know, any, know where your heart is, but your words tell, tell who you are. They do. Quit trying to justify it. Oh, 
I'm not really an angry person. I just explode one or, once or twice a month. Um, no, you're not. A, you, no, you're an angry person. Admit it. So here's where the gospel and the gospel identity enter this space and bring healing and bring transformation to our mouths. They begin to, the gospel bring, helps us to become an edifier or an encourager. It sets us free to rejoice in the gladness in a way that a wrong identity never can. The words can be external, but they can all be, always be exter- internal as well. The way that you speak to yourself, the way that you regard others inside yourself. You might not speak them, but they're the words that are a part of you, who you are. As we grow in the understanding of Christ's life, of Jesus, his love and his forgiveness rests on us. And his life is infused into our life. See, the gospel isn't about just getting forgiven so that we're going to go to heaven and that's it. No, the gospel talks about how the the life of Christ is infused in us. So that the life of Christ flows through us. So that the life of Christ is, is in glory through his people, not just individually, but together as the body. You see, that's the gospel. It's not just that, that, it's, that his life is infused so that I am first and foremost a son or daughter of God. That's who I am. I'm washed clean by the blood of Christ. I can anchor myself in, who, in God and who he says I am in Christ, that I am his, that I'm accepted, that I'm loved, that, that he is for me, not against me, that all of my sins are absorbed by Jesus on the cross. My mouth begins to change because his life is infused in me and I then live accordingly because his life is transforming mine. If someone comes to me and is better than me, I don't have to tear them down. I just have to celebrate. Oh, isn't that a great gift in your life? I'm so glad that of your gift, it's not mine. If your identity is... Is your be- the best interest, uh, best business guy, or the best uh, salesman guy, or the best uh, dad in the midst of all of the non, not so good dads, or the best mum in the world? If that's where your identity is, you will be forced to tear down others because your identity is at stake. If your identity is rooted in the gospel, then you're free. You're free. You're free to celebrate. You're free to rejoice. You're free because you're marked by edifying and encouraging because you can't threaten me. I'm secure in Christ. But I want to say, my friends, I'm still learning. Are you? I'm still trying to work this out. I'm still trying to get it right because I fail and I make mistakes so often and I stumble. Just like James said. Nearly finished. You're going to see people who are stronger than you and have them around you. People who are better than you and have them around you. Why? Because they're no threat at all. Because your identity isn't in about being who you are against them or comparison to them. So let's try stopping comparing ourselves to others. One of the bad things for pastors is that we compare ourselves to other pastors. We see the celebrity pastor and think, oh. We see the pastor who's doing this big thing and you go, oh. What's wrong with me? And I've got to stop. We've got to stop. 
It's not about comparing ourselves with others. And it's not about comparing our church with another church. God's doing something wonderful in other parts of the body as he's doing something wonderful here. I want to ask you, have you been set free to rejoice in others? Have you been set free from your anger, from being angry, or are you angry? Have you been set free from your jealousy, or are you jealous? Is your identity in Jesus as a son and daughter of the Most High God? Or do you incessantly feel like you have to point out the weaknesses of others, the weaknesses of institutions, the weaknesses of work, the weaknesses of church, the weaknesses of home, and the weaknesses of the neighbourhood? Are you an expert on all that is wrong? An identity rooted in Jesus changes how you see the world and changes the way you speak. If we were to take the example of Jesus in all of his ministry, he always spoke for the benefit of others. Even when he spoke to the Pharisees, you whitewashed sepulchres, he spoke for the benefit of the community. You who are without sin, cast the first stone for the benefit of that lady and for the benefit of those who are going to cast the stones. Jesus always spoke, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of others and for the glory of his Father who was in heaven. And ultimately, when he came to uh, the cross, we read in Isaiah, I've been playing with this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And if you've ever slaughtered a lamb, Doug will tell you this, I'll tell you this, as we've had to slaughter lambs in our lives, they say nothing. You just slit their throat and they say nothing. Not like a pig, he squeals like nothing else. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, sheep don't bleat too much when it's come to shearing. So he did not open his mouth. Why didn't he open his mouth? Because he stood and bore the punishment for the sins of our mouths, of our tongues. And in Matthew, quoting the next one, Deb, please. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory what if rivers became a place marked by edification and encouragement and it is a place of encouragement it is it is a place of love it is a place of welcome but what if that was so well known that people just wanted to come here because of that place what if even now in our heads we'd begin to make a list of people we wanted to speak life into those young people coming up those ones we're going to pass on the, the church to. Those ones who need the encouragement and the teaching. I see this in you. It's so encouragement. I see this in you. I praise God for the gift of faith. You're always the one who drives us to prayer. You're always the one who points us towards the Lord. You're so willing to open up your home and your heart. Thank you. Those wonderful words that bring out the best in other people. And encouragement and edify them so that they will be the best that they can. What does your mouth reveal about you? Are you angry? Are you jealous? Are you bitter? Are you desperate? Are you sad? Are you in pain? Are you needy? Look, you can try to spin it and justify all you have. 
all you can, but your mouth will, will betray you every time. And what, what did Isaiah do when he glimpsed the Lord in his life? In Isaiah 6, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Jesus comes to us today and he says, I want to heal you. I want to heal you. And when he heals us, our mouths will change. Don't constantly try to defend yourself. Rest. Wouldn't it be better just to breathe and know that you're mine, God would say? All the acceptance you crave is found in Jesus as a son and daughter of God. And I'll leave these words of Colossians. I won't read them on the screen. But God, our Father, today, as we look at this very serious chapter and these very words that we can self-condemn ourselves with, these words that sometimes we look at and say, oh God, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed, I'm no good. Father, you want to bring healing into our lives, healing from those places of inferiority and rejection. You want to bring healing into our lives where we have been damaged or we have damaged others. You want to bring healing into our lives so that we speak with the words of life, not the words of death. As we invite you into our life, Lord Jesus, it's not just so that we get a ticket to heaven. But the gospel says that when we invite you in, you come in fully. Your life is infused into ours by the Holy Spirit. And out of that comes the transformation of God. Out of that comes the transforming words. Out of that comes transformation to others. Out of that comes life. So we would submit to your life, Lord Jesus, this morning with the heart to say, take all of us. Make us whole. Heal us and transform us. And allow the words of our mouths, the words of our mouths, to be transforming of others. Convict us where we are in fault. But we confess that we have sinned. And we repent of that sin today. But Jesus, we want to be your disciples who make disciples we want to be your light in the midst of a dark world we want to bring your wisdom your salt into this world would you help us we need it if they're here other people who are damaged because of words and have bad programming in their lives because of words would you touch their lives and heal them today if they're here, those here who recognize their 
hurtful words that they have said or negative words or downing words, would you help them to walk away from those and turn towards you? In all of us, do work today. We pray in Jesus' name.